When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome. Happy Friday. Glad to be here. Jason Whitlock. Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And we have an awesome show planned for you today, but we're going to start with a confession. Uh, as you guys know, I think I started this week, or it was last week. My memory's getting fuzzy. You guys know I'm, I'm getting old and I'm, my memories are fuzzy, but I started out and I wrote a piece and I, I uh, talked about on the show that Uncle Jimmy's bout with COVID has shaken me up and I have been taking more aggressive, more focused, a more determined approach to my weight problem uh, because of Uncle Jimmy has shaken me up, what's going on with him and COVID, and I understand my risk factors. And so I, I've been doing awesome, awesome. And, and those of you that have followed me on social media and followed me other places, you know I'm very transparent about my battle with the bulge, and I've told you all about one meal a day and things I, steps I took just last year in 2020 where I actually I dropped 60, 70 pounds and made some real progress. But I, I got to run through the finish line. There's some more real progress I need to make. And I told you all that moving here to Nashville has been a struggle that uh, there's a Hattie B's or a fried chicken or a hot chicken spot on damn near every corner. You know how they got liquor stores on every corner in certain neighborhoods? In Nashville, they got hot chicken on every corner. And, and your boy likes hot chicken. And so I've done some backsliding here in Nashville. And Uncle Jimmy has helped me. Uh, what's going on with Uncle Jimmy has helped me uh, regain my focus. And so I've been doing awesome. I mean, I've, I've just been killing. And I, I've been eating very clean. I've been eating very low calorie. I've been exercising. I've been on my Stairmaster. And, and you could just feel the progress happening in real time, or at least I could. And I'm sure you can see it. I mean, I normally look really good. But as you can see today, I mean, I look awesome. Uh, so I'm sure you can see the progress yourself. But uh, yesterday, I hit a speed bump. I just got to be real. I hit a speed bump. Uh, I was on my way uh, to get a haircut uh, when my barber told me that, you know, he needed to slide me in at a little bit later time. And I didn't want to go home. And so I stopped at uh, one of my favorite restaurants here or bars here called The Doghouse. Friend of mine, Steve Ford, owns it. It's v virtually right across the street from my house. But I just stopped there. I said, like, oh, I'll kill the time here, drink some water. Uh, hopefully, the, the country singer Chris Young comes in all the time, and I thought maybe I would see him. Uh, but while there, I had some wings. I had the dry rub wings. And those were so good that I said, you know what, might, might as well top it off with a little barbecue wings. And so I had the dry rub wings, and then I had the barbecue wings, and then I left and went and got a haircut. And by the time I got home, my stomach started having a conversation with me about, hey man, what the hell did you just do? We haven't been doing that. I'm not prepared for a bunch of dry bub wings and barbecue wings to be in my stomach. And so about six o'clock, I started like, oh, this ain't good. Let, let me just take a little nap and, and see if I can shake this off. 
And I would say around 11 p.m., I started these every 30 to 40 minute journeys to the bathroom, unloading one wing at a time, dropping one wing off at the swimming pool per trip. And I started sweating. Uh, my nose started running. Uh, I just, this look, and I, I ain't no telling how many steps I got in going from the bedroom to the bathroom, bathroom to the bedroom, 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 black, black, back and forth. And I was, I started thinking of it as exercise because I was getting squats in, squatting down on the toilet seat and then getting back up. Uh, but it was a painful night last night, to say the least. And it was a, just another lesson uh, to me to stay the course, to uh, keep my commitment to eating clean. Uh, and so it just made this morning and everything a struggle. And so I don't have a fire to start with you today. Because one, I just completed writing my column with, you know, this is day 60 of my writing binge. I had promised you all I was going to make a great first impression and write for 60 consecutive days. Today is day 60. I just completed a piece. It's a celebration of a lot of the people that have inspired my writing and, and not the greatest fire starter. So in lieu of that, in place of that, I said, you know what? Let's just start the show by bringing the smartest man on the show onto the show early. And so we're going to roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring in friend of the show, uh, Professor Delano Squires, Professor D, the smartest man on the show. Delano has written a column this week about what he calls Jab Crow, uh, the, the vaccination version of Jim Crow and what's going on in New York. And so Delano, I'm sorry you had to sit through and listen to you know <laughs> my struggles uh, through the night. Uh, but I'm here, I feel good now, I feel refreshed. And, and so I don't need, I, I don't have COVID, uh, you know, but, but I do wanna talk about Jab Crow and just what's going on in New York and how these new rules in New York, I think <clears throat> uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor calls it the key to NYC, his plan on how he's going to deal with unvaccinated people and how it's going to directly impact a disproportionate amount of black people. So please explain the key to NYC. Sure. Um, Jason, I'm glad you're feeling better. I, I continue to pray for Uncle Jimmy's speedy recovery um, for him and his sons and you know, looking forward to seeing you, you guys back in the studio together. So, um, but I know for sure this weekend I won't be eating any wings. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, in terms of the article, um, it, it was sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek reference. You know, people have talked about Jab Crow or Jim Crovid. Some people talk about, um, I'm typically not one for hyperbole and I, I try not to invoke some of the more painful parts of, you know, our history, American and, and particularly, you know, black history to make political points today. But I do believe in holding people to their own principles. And um, in terms of the keys to NYC, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that um, starting, I want to say it was August 17th, so earlier this week, uh, every New York City resident would have to be vaccinated and show proof of vaccination if they wanted to um, enter a grocery store, go to a restaurant, go to a movie theater, or any other number of uh, indoor venues across the city, across the five boroughs. So the program starts this week, started this week. Enforcement won't start until mid-September, you know, to give business owners an opportunity to get used to the new uh, rules. Um, and I wrote the article because the vaccination rates in New York City are um, different across different groups. Uh, for African-Americans, it's less than 40 percent. Um, for whites and Hispanics, it's in the mid-50s. And then for Asians, it's about 72 percent. So two things that occurred to me. One is that having to show proof of ID both to get the vaccine and to confirm uh, vaccine passport integrity 
seems like the type of thing that the president would call a relic of Jim Crow because to him, it's hard for black people to get IDs because he brought this up during um, the the brouhaha around Georgia's uh, proposed voting legislation where he said requiring uh, a driver's license um, to go along with a mail-in ballot makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. So in, in this case, you're talking about requiring uh, a vaccination passport to allow people just to go into a restaurant or to buy groceries. And then on the second, uh, on the second hand, as I said, the, the impact of this policy is guaranteed to not have a quote unquote equi- equitable um, sort of distribution, right? With the majority of black New York City residents being unvaccinated, it's obvious that they are going to bear the brunt of these policies. So uh, that's why I was looking for Ibram Kendi to come in and say, declare once and for all that this type of policy, because in his perspective, any any policy that produces disparate outcomes based on race, racial or ethnic group is in and of itself racist. I'm expecting him to come out and declare Bill de Blasio's plan racist, as well as any other vaccine mandate or vaccine passport initiative, because again, nationally, African-Americans have um, some of the lowest rates of vaccination across the country. And, and I, I don't say that as a criticism, by the way. People have a right to make whatever health decisions they feel are in their best interest. I'm just observing a fact. And I'd like to see people apply their principles consistently, regardless of who it is that's pushing a particular policy. Listen, I, I totally agree with you. And you know, there's always these unintended consequences or collateral damage to these type of rules. And it's like no one has given any foresight, forethought into these rules that they're passing, the impact it's going to have on people. But anybody that has been paying attention could see what's coming. And I, I can't wait to hear the explanation when basically you can't go buy groceries unless you're vaccinated. And then Hmm. so you have black people or poor black people that will have to rely on Instacart or DoorDash Mm -hmm. or some Uber Eats or some other Postmates, some service to shop for them. And so what you've just done is increased their expense for eating by five, maybe as much as 10%. There's there's financial ramifications to the decisions that these guys are making. They live in some sort of elitist bubble where perhaps Mm -hmm. they I order DoorDash. I use Instacart. Why shouldn't they? Well, maybe it's because they can't afford it. They can't afford that extra expense. And so as this thing plays out and as it damages, you know, it it reminds me of uh, I was watching uh, one of the news stations uh, this week and someone pointed out that this thing with uh, not being able to evict people or collect rent from people and who it was actually harming. And disproportionately, black and Hispanic people who are renters, they are own real estate and rent it out, they have one building or one rental property. And these rules are impacting them more significantly than they are the people that own a great number of buildings and are wealthy. And so I just look at all these things that we're doing, and these are all supposed to be people that are out to protect the little guy, and they're out to protect people of color. None of their solutions ever do any of that. I I just don't get why people can't see that. Yeah. So so, um, as it relates to to the New York plan, it's a couple of things. One, in order to use DoorDash and Instacart and Uber Eats, you need access to the Internet. And I could have sworn that the president said that black folk have trouble getting access to the Internet as well. Um, These services are often um, um, the people who who drive for these services, who deliver these services are themselves often, um, you know, black and Hispanic adults. So 
some of them may not be be able be able to go into the the grocery stores or restaurants if, if they don't get vaccinated. The other thing, and I talk about this in the column, I can't imagine that Bill de Blasio, even though he, he's he's outgoing, right? So New York will have a new mayor by September, but I can't imagine the new mayor or any other um, public sector leader wants the visual of seeing white people going through the front door of a restaurant, being welcomed with open arms, and black folk having to go through the back door or sit in a separate section or sit at a separate lunch counter. Um, the, the optics of that are just terrible. Um, so to me, it just makes me question, you know, why is it that these people feel like they have to mandate these things? And, you know, public health officials and, and other people can debate about the effectiveness of the vaccine and, and, and why it seems that only vaccine and masks are pushed in terms of responses to COVID. But regardless of the reasons, the, the, the data is clear. You know, all groups are not equally vaccinated. Uh, and that's why towards the end of the article, and as I said, part of it was tongue in cheek, but I wanted to address a serious issue. I call it the Squires principle, but really it, it's, it's something that, um, you know, exists in public policy. And the premise is simple, that the success of any policy is a complex interaction between government responsibility and individual agency. The, the more the government is responsible for the success of a policy, um, the the likelier that they actually will be successful. The more the policy depends on individual agency and individual decision-making, the less likely it'll be successful from the government's perspective. And I use the example of uh, a local government can decide to build fitness centers and recreation centers in low-income neighborhoods, regardless of race, in low-income neighborhoods, and based on you know health outcome data, they can say the people in this particular neighborhood have higher rates of diabetes and hypertension. They can be very successful at that because they control the resources, um, they control the contracts, they control the planning, they control the buildings. But what they can't do is guarantee that diabetes and hypertension are going to decrease by 75% because those decisions are made at the individual level. And people, and this goes to what you were saying, Jason, people have to decide to want to eat in a different way, to exercise, to get proper amounts of rest, to keep their stress levels down. Those are all things that government cannot mandate. And what you see time and time again, particularly from the left, is when they cannot um, persuade and incentivize, they move to coercion and force. And I think that's what the residents in New York City and just across the country, um, that, that's the circumstance that a lot of us are looking at. Delano, you you brought me to another point that that you stated, but I want to linger on it a little bit in terms of you mentioned Uber drivers. Maybe they haven't been vaccinated and they can't work. Or you Instacart shopper, if you haven't been vaccinated, you can't go into the grocery store. And so it just brings me to they're limiting the jobs that black people can get this is going to disproportionately impact them. Many people, their first jobs, or they feed their families by working in a restaurant, mm-hmm. washing dishes, being a busboy, being a waiter or a waitress, any, any of those things. When I think about my own life, my first job, I believe, was as a, as a bellman at a hotel. In New York, mm-hmm. I'm sure I wouldn't be able to have this job if I'm unvaccinated. I can remember working in a meatpacking plant. I can there are the first jobs for people are very critical and get you in the habit of working. I'll never forget my first paycheck and that, mm-hmm. that feeling of independence. And once you have that feeling, you never really want to feel dependent again on your parents or whatever. That's how you get freedom and you get to do whatever you want to do. And, and, and they're passing rules and laws in New York that are going to deny people that freedom, disproportionately, black people. I, this seems so incredibly stupid. So it, it, I, it seems racist to me, and I'm just sorry. That's When I look at the left, you can't keep convincing me that all of their mistakes are on accident. I just refuse to believe that they're all on accident. 
I think they know exactly what they're doing. I don't know. As, as someone who, you know, has thought a lot and, and sort of worked in, in the public policy world, um, there are times where I just I wonder whether the, the issue is malice or is it just hubris? Right. Are people I think a lot of it is that people have so much pride. They think that they know how to order the lives of millions of people better than those individuals do themselves. They think that whatever it is that they want is what everyone else should want. And if they want it, then they should force it on everyone else. Because New York is also the same city that banned um, sugary drinks of a certain size. You know, the, so New Yorkers are used to living in a nanny state and have been for, I'd say, probably the better part of 20 years. But uh, going back to the issue of, of whether it's racist, right? I'm not a person that, that believes that just because a policy, a decision, a program has a disproportionate racial impact, meaning specifically that different ethnic groups have different outcomes in that particular area, that that means the policy itself is racist. I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that discrimination necessarily or, or that disparities necessarily equal discrimination. But Ibram Kendi believes that. And that's why I'm waiting to see whether he will speak up. These are his principles. He has staked his entire career as a public intellectual, and particularly since last year, on that one premise. If you find disproportionate outcomes, then that means that there's a racist policy behind them. And I want to see whether he's, you know, man enough to stand by his words, because to this point, he's been silent. So for the left, a lot of what they do, they focus on on words. You know, they focus on things that the right says or sometimes that the right doesn't say. Right. If if a conservative makes a pro-American citizen argument against illegal immigration, the left will read into that. This person is scared of the browning of America. This is this person is racist. But when the left presents policies that, again, according to their own definitions, have uh, a disparate impact, a disproportionate impact on, you know, black and brown communities, then for whatever reason, they they seem to be silent on that. And you can go down the list that that can be their opposition to school choice. That can be their, I mean, promotion and and, uh, wholehearted support of abortion. That could be their um, promotion of defunding the police and also these vaccine passports. Across the board, when it comes to issues of substance, they promote things that oftentimes have a a negative impact on on our communities. I'm sitting here thinking about your narrative on Ibram Kendi and and his narrative that uh, any disparate outcomes can be explained by racism. And so what he's basically saying is that all human beings are virtually the same, and if you remove racism, they'll all make the same decisions and all do the same thing. And, right. and so what he's denying is that culture may shape people's attitudes, beliefs, and actions. And so you can't convince me that if you removed racism, would I study as hard as the average Asian child who I grew up with? Would I take academics as seriously and study as hard as them when I, let's take, there was a kid, there was a, Yu Chong Miller was one of the smartest uh, kids I went to school with. Uh, she was short, relatively unathletic, I was tall, really athletic, loved to play football, basketball, whatever sport I could. And so I spent a lot of time playing sports. She spent a lot of time studying and preparing for academics. And, And her parents required that. And for and my parents wanted me to study and be a good student and they put some some pressure on me but they really enjoyed uh me playing athletics and i can't say they preferred one over the other because neither one of my parents were athletes but they quickly figured out like oh man this dude can get a free education in college playing (laughs) playing football 
you know what, we're going to support the hell out of this. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I just, Ibram Kendi seems to be in denial of culture. And, and, and because I, I, I think culture uh, determines of the behavior of a lot of people. And I think that uh, we as black people have been shoved or directed towards a culture that takes us down paths that don't lead to academic success, don't lead to success in a lot of areas where we're struggling. Uh, and that's why I believe in, hey, let's fix the culture. Let's adjust yeah. the culture. If we actually want the same results as Asians or white people, maybe we need to adopt a culture more similar to theirs. If we don't, and we're perfectly fine with the results we're getting in these areas. Let's just don't change the culture and let's just keep it going with the whole hip hop is the culture and promiscuous sex and disrespect is the culture. And we'll keep getting these results. Oh, I have, oh I'm going to try to I'm going to try to rein myself in because, I mean, you you hit on something right there. A, a couple of things. One. To your point. We talk about, um, you know, particularly in the black community, we'll say, well, every parent wants their child to succeed in school. And that's true. But every every um, child and parent does not prioritize. And when I say prioritize, I'm talking again about the observed allocation of scarce resources. And there's no resource scarce in the time. Everybody gets the same number of hours in the day and how you allocate them says a lot about what you value. So if in our community, kids are out at football practice and basketball practice from the time they get out of school to the time you know, they're ready to go home and, and then they do a half an hour of homework, we shouldn't expect to get the same results as um, families or communities where as soon as school is out, kids are doing homework until they're ready to go to bed. It would be the equivalent of someone saying, well, every group in, in America loves to be physically fit and exercise, and they expect that a kid who, you know, plays on the weekends at the park and does some, you know, intramural basketball, you know, twice a month is going to end up in the NBA when there are other people who from sunup to sundown are training their body, their mind for the uh, expected outcome of, of going pro. And you, you heard that uh, a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, LeVar Ball was talking about that. He said everything that, that he... Um, that went into his selections of a wife and even, you know, as the two of them parented their children, they were all about making sure their kids got to the league. And you could see the, the proof was in the pudding. So I, I actually use a, a quick example that ties in both of these things. There was a movie. I didn't watch it, but I watched the trailer. It's called Boogie. And it was sort of a Romeo and Juliet story set in New York City with a young Asian-American lead. He, he wanted to play on the basketball team and he was in love with a black girl in his school. And in the trailer, the one part that struck me, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. There was one point where the, the, the kid must have done something, you know, that got on his coach's bad side. And they had him, the coach, the principal and his father in the room. And at one point, the, the, the lead character got on his knees and told his coach, I'm sorry, coach. And the principal said, no, you can get up. You don't have to do that. And the father told him, we come from, I'm paraphrasing, we come from a culture that values honor, dignity, and respect. And without that, we are nothing. And that, that really hit me because you can, you, to your point, you can see the results of culture as it sort of manifests itself, um, both within, you know, specific families and then across a community. And you can always tell the things that people value because um, one, they're willing to fight for them. Two, they reward them, right? They reward the things that they want more of. And three, they punish the things that they want less of. And to your point, our culture is set up, you know, when I say our culture, I'm talking about this particular iteration of black culture is set up where we definitely, we value education, we value entertainment, we value athletics, because again, those are the people that we reward. Those are the people who we think are our spokespeople. Um, 
a kid who says I scored 50 points in the basketball game is generally going to get more love than the kid who says I figured out this particular calculus theorem. And then we wonder why there are different results as it relates to educational outcomes. Well, part of it is because there are other kids who spend more time studying than we do. And nobody wants to tackle that because they'll say that that's racist, but it's the truth. And in the same way, none of us expect the NBA to be uh, 7 or 8% Asian and 18% um, Hispanic. Because if those groups don't put their time and energy and effort into those areas, why would we expect them to have those outcomes? So, as I said, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head, Jason. And you're, the conversation we're having about culture and its impact on social outcomes is a thousand times more sophisticated than anything you get from Ibram Kendi. Because he thinks all of life is about skin color. And that's the only thing that he sees. And it, he's so short-sighted that he speaks as if there are no outcomes that cut against white people. He never talks about why um, the median incomes are higher for Asians than whites. He never talks about why whites have uh, higher rates of suicide and drug overdoses. He only thinks that disparate outcomes uh, and, and racial inequities uh, harm black and brown communities. But part of that, as I said, he's consumed with skin color and he can't see th- anything outside of his own, his own ideology. Delano, one of the reasons I, I made you a part of this show is because of all the things you represent uh, in real life. Things that, you know, to be honest with you, I wish I represented some of them. <laughs> uh, but I'm just going to keep it real in terms of, of the culture and, and what you're willing to sacrifice is going to determine the rewards that you get. The more you're willing to sacrifice, the more rewards you're going to get in that particular endeavor. For me, as a writer, as a media personality, I have made incredible sacrifices, personal and otherwise, to be as successful a sports writer and media broadcaster as I can be. And the rewards have been tremendous. Uh, But I look at someone like yourself who is in the first leg of what you believe and I'm sure your wife believes and I believe is gonna be a long marriage marathon. And, and when, I st- when we start, as black people started evaluating the results we're getting or the people on TV that wanna talk about the results we're getting, have we made the necessary sacrifices? Because I think anybody that wants to look at the academic achievement of kids, the first place they're going to look is, well, let's take a look at the parents. Yep. Come from a two-parent family. When we go look in our jails and prisons across the country, the number one indicator is broken home. Yep. And, and so if we really want the results to change, we're going to have to change the sacrifices we're willing to make. And marriage is one of the hardest challenges in the history of the world. There are groups of people that take on that challenge and their cultures reward them for taking on that challenge and sticking in that challenge because there are no easy marriages. I've never been married, but a lot of my friends have, some successfully, some not so. They all say the same thing, whether or not, the, you know, my best friend from college has been married to Deandra it's damn 25 years, I guess. Mm. And it's a very good marriage, but it's hard. <laughs> it's some real hard work. And so some of my friends that have been divorced, they talk about how hard it is. And so everybody says it's hard, but some groups of people are willing to stick to it. And, and I, that's why, I, I mean, I just celebrate you and what your wife are doing because, uh, again, Ibram Kendi, anybody with a brain, knows this is true. Right. If you want young people to do better, the parents have to do better and they have to make some sacrifices. And so men and women, it, it may, the sacrifice you may have to, may be some finance. Oh, you can't have that second home uh, in Florida. Uh, you may have to live on a tighter budget and live within your means rather than chase 
some idealistic, materialistic lifestyle that everyone's telling you. There are sacrifices you have to make for each other and for the betterment of your family. You, you, you can't mistresses and things like that. If you yeah. really want your kids to be successful, you got to sacrifice those things. And yeah. and uh, it, it seems so simple. I just don't understand why we can't talk about it publicly. So, so two, two things, right? Um, one, I'll share a personal anecdote. I remember one time, it was a couple of years back, I was asking my dad, um, who's one of the smartest people I know, I asked him why he never went and tried to go back to school and get like an MBA or an advanced degree. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, you wanted to eat, right? And I, I knew immediately what he meant. My parents got married young. Um, my dad might've been around 24. My mom was probably about 21. I, I came tumbling into the world exactly nine months after they got married. And he had to make sacrifices in terms of his own career. And even though he probably could have gone on to get, well, not could, probably he, he could have gone on to get an MBA or whatever advanced degree he wanted to get, he had to work. He had to work to, to support his family. Um, they didn't have much. You know, we lived with an aunt for a period of time after they got married and then, you know, from moved from apartment to apartment until we got you know, they got settled into their, their current home, but that struck me. And I realized that previous generations have sacrificed so much for us. This is across the board, regardless of race, color, creed, ethnicity. The people who came before us sacrificed a lot for us. And I get frustrated when I see us complaining a lot about how much they should have given us and didn't, or what somebody did 250 years ago, instead of us talking about what we are willing to sacrifice um, for the next generation. And for me, this goes to your point, Jason, um, I, I definitely appreciate you you extending an opportunity for me to come on the show. And one of the things that I'm willing to sacrifice is my, is my personal reputation. I'm willing to be called all of the ugly names that people call quote unquote black conservatives. If it means that my daughter can grow up in a world where the people who represent her don't high five the guys that make a living disrespecting her. I'm, I'm willing to take that heat. I'm willing to be called a, a coon and a tom and a, and a sellout if it means that it opens up some space for people like us to talk about the importance of marriage and family in the black community. And I'm, I'm willing to fight to see that, um, you know, in terms of, of, of change that, that you know, we wanna see, I'd much rather have, you know, particularly among you know, low-income African-Americans, uh, a thousand percent increase in the marriage rates among black folk who don't have college degrees. I'd much rather see that than a thousand percent increase in corporate board diversity, right? The, the black middle class and the black elite, they're doing well. They have every home on Martha's Vineyard booked for the summer, right? They get to wave to the Obamas as they go by. They drive their nice cars. They claim to be oppressed, but if you look back two generations ago, their grandmothers, the average um, sort of uh, occupation for black women, particularly in the South in, in that time was a domestic, right? Now those women's granddaughters pay other women to clean their homes, right? Because so there's been so much progress over the last couple of generations. The black elite, as I said, and the black middle class are doing well. But in some of the communities that I, you know, I live in and I, I frequent and I move through, there's not a single man who lives in the home with his wife and his children. And if we think that harassing white people is going to change that, then, then we're in for a rude awakening. So uh, I'm, I'm willing to take some hits. I'm willing to take some heat um, standing next to you. I mean, you get a lot of smoke and I'm willing to take that because I'm thinking about I'm, I'm looking downrange, right? I'm, I'm, as I've said before, I'm raising my grandchildren's parents and I want my grandkids and my great grandkids to be able to look back and say, you know what? I respect Pop Pop, you know? He was, he was willing to, to risk some things so that we could live a better life. And, 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 if, and if the worst thing that they say about me is that I criticize the Obamas and, you know, whoever else is in the black elite, I'm willing to take that. Delano, thank you so much. Have a great weekend with thank your you, family. You
Uh, I'm headed home to Indianapolis to spend some time with my family. My sister turned 60 wow. yesterday. And we're having a party on uh, Saturday. So uh, and I'm going to see my mom, my brother, and also going to take a little trip up to Ball State to see the Ball State football team. So I got a big, a busy, big weekend plan. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. All right. I'm going to tell you about my great friends at Built Bar and why they become a part of my daily routine. Uh, as I started the show, I told you all about how chicken wings uh, snuck their way back into my life last night. And uh, or not last night, it was yesterday, probably around two o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, Corey just threw me a built bar. Man, I'm a hell of an athlete. You see that catch I just made? Anyway, uh, probably about two in the afternoon, I have these chicken wings. And, you know, by five, six o'clock, I feel terrible. I haven't eaten since two o'clock. The first thing I did when I got to the studio today so I could make it through this show was grab myself a salted caramel built bar. It's part of my routine now as I try to get healthier and try not to, if, if COVID jumps on me, I wanna be able to shake it off, fight it off like it's nothing. And that's why I'm addressing my weight. And that's why built bars become such a big part of my daily routine. The great flavors, Rocky Road, salted caramel, they're low in calories and carbs. They won't cause your sugar to spike. Built bar is an awesome addition to my routine. You guys need to go to built.com, put in the fearless promo code, and you can get 15% off your first order. Use promo code fearless for 15% off at built.com. Welcome back. All right, let's roll out to Chicago. I'd asked uh, our regular contributor, uh, Greg Couch, uh, we were talking last night and we were trying to understand the Trevor Bauer story uh, that's been rocking Major League Baseball. ESPN's been playing the story up. Trevor Bauer involved in a civil case where a young woman has accused him of sexual assault. Trevor, of course, last year won the National League Cy Young Award, uh, I think while playing for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, I think he's the highest paid player in B Major League Baseball. He's been sidelined, I think, since July the 2nd when the allegations about he and this woman and sexual assault I first came to light. And so it's been being covered uh, by ESPN. I didn't have a full grasp of the story last night. And so I was like, hey, Greg, can you do some research and write something for us that so we can actually talk about it and, and perhaps see if there if this is an important story or if Trevor Bauer is being exploited by the young woman. There, there was a news story yesterday uh, about a judge making a significant ruling in the civil case. And so, Greg, I, I think I've, I've set a up here. Give me an explanation of the Trevor Bauer story and, and where it sits today. Okay, well, I mean, the woman wanted a protective order against Trevor Bauer because they had sex uh, twice and it was rough sex. And so she got battered and beaten. She's got bruises all over her face and everything. So she wanted a protective order. She didn't want uh, Bauer anywhere near her. And the judge ruled yesterday uh, that, no, she's not getting that order because she actually wanted that sex. She she had texted Trevor a few times, hey, that I don't remember the exact words, but the sex we had last time was great. And it was a great turn on when you choked me out and I was unconscious. And so let's time let's make it more so this time. So, you know, that's the story. And and, you know, it's going to become an, an issue because, you know, I guess my feeling is, you know, behaviors change. But morals don't. OK. And I don't have any problem with what these two consenting adults are doing in their bedroom behind closed doors. But when it gets to the point where Trevor Bauer is sexually gratified by just pummeling and beating the daylights out of a woman, I just think that's sexually deviant behavior. So I've got a problem with it to that point. And it's just it's just hard to get your arms around it, because, again, do you punish a person for for, you know, consensual sex? with another adult, you know, no, but, you know, I just think there's something wrong here with Bauer and uh, it is, you know, there, you, you don't hit a woman. There, there are morals, there are things that you need to stick with through the years that should never change. You don't hit a woman, you treat people with respect. 
So again, it, it's kind of like what you're saying. I go back and forth a little on this, but but that is how I feel. Um, he's kind of messed up in the head, and at the same time, I can understand the judge's ruling. Yeah, the, the female judge, I want to be clear here, did not give the woman the protective order because she said there's text messages, and I think perhaps the woman's even acknowledged during the civil case that she did ask for this. And, and I, you, quoted, uh, you quoted the, uh, the judge saying something <laughs> very interesting and, what's my computer is freezing here. Uh, but I, hold for one second, I'm about to call it up. We, cons- we consider in sexual encounters that when a woman says no, she should be believed. So what should we do when she says yes? And that's kind of the basis. And then she says, if she sets limits and he exceeded them, this case would have been clear, the judge said. But she set limits without considering all the consequences and responded did not exceed the limits that the petitioner set. And again, when you read the details of this story and how he bludgeoned her, pummeled her, it, it does gross you out. And the question becomes, it looks like he's headed towards being exonerated in civil court. It looks like if he's exonerated in civil court, it would be hard for me to believe there would be a criminal case brought against him, although L.A. investigators are investigating that. But it looks like he's headed towards exoneration in the court system. But in the space of public opinion and the Me Too movement, we don't know how that's going to play out. That's right. I mean, there's we're trying to find the line between rough sex and assault. Okay, so. That's where Bauer, you know, seems to have crossed the line, according to the woman. And the judge is basically saying, well, there's no way of of knowing because the woman asked for rough sex. And so, you know, we don't know where the line goes as far as the court system, the judicial system. You know, the police are looking into it now. We don't know whether they're going to file charges or not. The police could still file charges, Jason, because, look, just because a woman said it was okay for him to hit her doesn't mean that the law says it's okay for him to hit her. You can't just assault someone because someone says it's okay. And she said that she was unconscious after he had choked her out with her own hair. And that when she woke up, he was punching her in the face and in the genitals. And, and, and you know, I mean, I don't know that you can just approve that and just say, it's okay, go ahead and do that to me. Those are still violent crimes. And then there's also the issue of what baseball is going to do. You know, it's, it's interesting to think that the commissioner of baseball is going to have to decide about whether he wants to penalize someone for having S&M with another woman in, a, in, you know, in private somewhere behind closed doors. So there, there's a lot to, to be made up to, to be decided here. And, uh, you know, I, we're just going to have to see how it comes out. I would imagine and I don't say this negatively, I'm just saying it, I believe, factually, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, has his finger in the air right now and is trying to see how much blowback is there going to be if, because I think right now they've extended his uh, suspension to August the 27th, I think Rob Manfred's trying to figure out how much blowback is there going to be. And, And part of the blowback might be because Trevor Bauer's white. This thing could get racialized over social media very quickly and and people could start saying, oh man, he nearly killed a woman in, during sex and you know, Major League Baseball is letting him come back on the field and play and, and he only had an, uh, he had a paid leave of absence. That's what he's been on since July the 2nd. So I, I could see someone potentially using this to stir racial animus and say that you know, he's benefiting from white privilege I, 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 again, I think Rob Manfred has his finger in the air. If you had to predict, Greg, or let's go, what do you think Rob Manfred would do? And then let me ask you specifically, because you've kind of given some opinion here. You think uh, Trevor Bauer is wrong. What would you do if you were the commissioner? Well, I mean, that's a tough question, okay? But I will answer it. Uh, but you make a good point about the Me Too uh, movement, okay? 
because I do I do agree the commissioner's got his finger in the air and they're going to see he's going to see how much you know how far they take this and what kind of public blowback there is. If it's really bad, he's going to it's going to be a businessman making a business decision with the commissioner. He's going to if if it's bad for business, I think he'll suspend Bauer. As far as what I would do, you know, the thing is, I would also probably suspend him if the blowback is bad. But I will say that I probably wouldn't suspend him if the blowback isn't bad, because, again, he's a guy having sex in private with a woman. But what I would do is if I were a team owner, I would not have him on my team. I just don't think I would want him representing my team. So I wonder whether he'll sort of be blackballed out of the league, even if he's not legislatively legislatively removed from the league. Wow. I, I, I don't think any owner will be comfortable drawing a line and saying, you know, this guy has a kind of sex that I disagree with and therefore I'm not going to have him on my team. Because the one thing we haven't mentioned and brought up is that there are also allegations that the woman is trying to financially exploit this situation. She had either texted or told a friend that, you know, she wanted to get a Range Rover and some cash out of this deal. She told the court, oh, I was just joking when I said that. Uh, but, but it's difficult for me to believe. I mean, just Robert Kraft is in another sport. He's in the NFL. But what happened to him at the massage parlor lets you know that billionaire owners have mm-hmm. private sex lives as well. And if they start drawing a line with, Trevor Bauer's uh, version of sex, they may be concerned, well, who's going to look into my closet and question me about whatever kind of sex I may or may not like having? I'm with you. I I don't understand the whole rough sex thing and the whole beating up people and some sort of sexual pain uh, provides pleasure. And and we have to be, I want to be fair to Trevor Bauer want to be fair to the alleged victim, uh, but she did have sex with him twice. She went through this experience, the rough sex experience with him one time, told him she liked it and wanted more of it. A female judge is saying, based off this communication, the boundaries you set, he did not exceed. And here we are in, in, in civil court over this matter. I, I, I just think for all, for Rob Manfred, obviously, I'm not going to make a judgment on whatever he decides to do. Uh, and, and it's hard for me. I, I, what Trevor Bauer's doing in the privacy of his home isn't what I would want to do in the privacy of my home. It's not what I think anybody should want to do in the privacy of their home. But we've created a society, Greg, where... All forms of sex are being normalized, and that's why I think this thing is tricky for the far-left Me Too movement, where the easier uh, play and exploitation might be, well, let's turn this racial. Uh, Because the far-left is the group that seems to be saying, any of your sexual desires are natural and normal, and they all must be legalized. And anybody that complains about any of them, they maybe they're SM phobes, I guess. Uh, and so that, that's why I, Manfred's finger is in the air right now. I think he's going to figure out the winds on this are blowing all directions. And so I, I think there's going to be some short suspension or maybe the rest of this season. But he's going to get his money. He's one of the most talented pitchers in Major League Baseball. He'll be back in the league next year. And and more than likely, I I don't know if he's going to face any sort of harassment from fans. They may face ribbing and ridicule, but I don't know if it'll be a concentrated movement to try to get him removed from baseball. That's where I think this lands. Uh, that's very possible. I mean, it depends on where the narrative goes and how strong the Me Too push is and whether women in any city that Trevor Bauer might play in are going to buy tickets or boycott the team. You know, uh, you, it's all possible. It's all possible to come out anyway. But, um, you know, I just feel like I wouldn't want Bauer on my team if I owned a team. I mean, that's I guess that's the only thing I can say. But, you, you know, you, 
what you're talking about, it's just, again, it's a very fine line here. We're, like I said, we're talking about the difference between rough sex and assault. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to differentiate it myself and just say if he wants to have rough sex with a woman behind closed doors, consensual, that's none of my business. I think people should stay out of other people's bedrooms, you know. But if he's assaulting her, you know, that's beyond that's beyond the pale. I mean, that's just too much. And, you know, we're supposed to have some sort of morals here where we're protecting people and showing empathy and. You know, we don't assault women. So, I mean, I, again, I wouldn't want someone who is assaulting women and taking sexual gratification from it on my team, representing my team. Uh, you know, I just I go to sell tickets also. I mean, I'm, I'd like to say I'm, I am taking it as a moral stance, but I'm also taking it as a business stance. So, I, I you know, we're just going to have to see how how this thing plays out as far as where the public yeah, opinion. I'm glad goes. I'm not in position where I have to make a decision on this because I don't know what I would do. I'm going to file this under my category of free, dumb, uh, and freedom, I think, is spelled F-R-E-E-D-U-M-B, and you can't be free without the dumb. And, and to me, the dumb flows two directions here, Trevor Bauer and the alleged victim, based off of what the judge is telling me, because, you know, we keep saying Trevor Bauer pummeled this woman. She asked to be pummeled. And, and... In America, you tend to get what you ask for. And if you ask for something, it, it generally speaking, if it's done to you, it's generally speaking, not a crime. I want to move on, Greg. This is day 60 of my uh, writing binge for The Blaze. I wanted to make a strong uh, impression when I started here at The Blaze. I wanted to introduce the audience to the kind of work that has you know, been at the foundation of my career. And so today is day 60. I've just wrote my 60th straight column, 60 straight days writing a column for The Blaze. And yesterday, someone tweeted at me where Sam Mellinger, a guy I used to work with the Kansas City Star, referenced me as one of the five writers who influenced his career. And it was because someone else over Twitter had asked the question, list the people or the people that have influenced the formative years of your writing. And, and so it made me think about all the writers who have had some sort of influence over me. And uh, I came up with a list of, I think, 12 or 13 I put out over Twitter. And then today in my column, I listed the 14 people that uh, influenced me. Uh, Mike Royko being at the top of my list, of course, that's no surprise to anybody that's followed my career. But we came up with a graphic showing our individual top tens of uh, writing influences. And I, I'm little I'm shocked by your list and I'm about to get to it. But I want to because I want to read off my list first. Of, and this is just my top ten. Mike Royko, the GOAT, great newspaper columnist, uh, the greatest newspaper columnist of all time out of Chicago. I started reading when I was a little kid. And as soon as I switched my major to journalism, I was like, I want to be like Mike and not Mike Jordan. I want to be like Mike Royko. Uh, the second person is Ralph Wiley. Uh, Ralph, a uh, dear friend of mine and mentor, he passed away 14 years ago, I think, maybe 17 years ago, 2004, maybe. Uh, Dear friend of mine, great influence on me, mentor, uh, discovered him when I was uh, in college. I think he was on the Phil Donahue show. David Simon, the uh, uh, creator of The Wire, huge influence on me, the show The Wire, you've heard me talk about. And then Michelle Alexander, I'm only going to talk about my top four because people sometimes get emails from me and it ends with, it's my name and then it's RWSA. And... People get these. What's the RWSA stand for? Royco Wiley Simon Alexander. Those are my Mount Rushmore of writing influences. Michelle Alexander wrote the book. Uh, the new Jim Crow uh, spoke to my family history and just it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. I don't even agree with all of it, but it's just an amazing, powerful book, had an incredible impact on me. Royco, Wiley, Simon, and Alexander. That's my Mount Rushmore. And then I look over at your list, and, and Royco, of course, is number one. I've known that about you forever. Uh, but who is Ted Couch? If that's your dad, I'm going to kick you off the show. 
Oh, uh, then it must not be my dad. <laughs> hey, my dad was a writer, a speech writer. And, uh, you know, he taught me about the craft of writing and the love of writing. So that is my dad. But don't kick me off the show. <laughs> well, how can your dad be number five? If my dad was a writer, he'd be number one. <laughs> uh, well, we're talking about writing and he's a great writer. But, uh, you know, if we're talking about influencing in my life, he moves up the list several spots. Probably number one. All right. And so Greg has Mike Royko, Kurt Vonnegut, Bernie Lincecum, Ernest Hemingway, Ted Couch, number five. And then I stopped at number six, Richard Wright, the great communist uh, Richard Wright, who wrote the book Black Boy. I'm very well aware of Richard Wright's work uh, that him uh, on your list kind of surprised me. You a communist sympathizer, Greg? I'm a native son fan, right? His, he starts with that book where he's talking about the rat and he's connecting it to those kids in Chicago and what the, the, those kids feel like, a rat living in the house and being chased around. It was a beautiful imagery and it really taught me all about metaphors and, and, and similes. And uh, yeah, I, I, again, I'm not talking about his political beliefs. I'm talking about his writing and what I was motivated by. Inspired Did you by. know that Richard Wright was a communist, Greg? Uh, I'm going to go Joseph McCarthy on you here. How long have you been associating with communists? Please explain. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I remember it from before, but you jog my memory of it right now. I forgot until you just said that. So uh, I don't think I'm associating with communists, but uh, you, know, you never know. I don't usually go around asking people what their political beliefs are. Uh, let me give you another name I don't recognize on here, and I may get trash for this maybe because maybe he's so famous i look stupid who's tim o'brien uh well he wrote he wrote some books about vietnam and the, he wrote a book called the things they carried and it's just an unbelievable start to that book where he, he they're sort of he says they're not they're non they're fiction but i think they're non-fiction they're from his experience and it's just the detail that he puts into this writing uh especially the first chapter of the things they carried he just, you know, he 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 sort of explains to you. He paints a big picture with details only. And you know, I think of writing. Really, it's a crime that I don't have my wife, Lisa, who's a writing instructor in a college, on that list. But she always talks about writing as diving into the details and then climbing to the big picture and diving into. That guy dove into the details and used the details to show the big picture. That was just an amazing thing. And by the way, your writing—you're probably the best climbing to the big picture person I've ever seen. I, I'm one of the best who overeaters you've ever seen uh, <laughs> climbing to a Big Mac and double cheeseburger you've ever seen. I, I don't know if I've climbed many things. You I'm talking about the process of writing into the details and using them to, to show the big picture. You get to the big picture in an amazing way. And by the way, there's nobody has ever topped me on eating Big Macs. I'm the big picture. I'm the big Big Mac guy. There's no you can forget that one. You don't you don't hold the crown gotcha. for that. And so I'm hoping your wife is watching because I, I knew that that was the other thing I was going to, I knew your wife uh, used to be your top editor and I knew what she did for a living and for her not to be on this list and your dad to be fifth on this list, I think <laughs> says something about you. I wish that, you know, I wish that I had a, you know, the woman I should have married was actually a writer. Uh, and, and it's one of my biggest regrets in life. I'm not going to say anymore because she may watch this or someone may send it to her and she'll know that I said that. Uh, so I'm going to shut my mouth and, and keep it moving and go back to this point that I wanted to make because I just got myself in a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> is my list is very personal. I reference friends of mine, Dan Lebatard, or former friends, but friends of mine at the time, Dan Lebatard, Mike Wilbon. I reference. Bill Simmons or my first, I mentioned Dan Wetzel, Brian Burwell. Uh, I don't see any friends of yours on this list. I mean, I, surely to God, I must be number 11 and they just cut you off at number 10. But I mean, is there no one you actually work with or any of your peers that you've actually looked at their work and was like, oh, man, I'd like to do some of that. I mean, I just I just explained about uh, your ability to climb to the big picture, you know, and I'll say another name that uh, probably could have been on the list is Jay Mariotti, just because he would stand fearlessly 
to the face of big time, powerful people. I think our connection just went bad, uh, Greg. <laughs> I think you just connected me in some way to Jay Mariotti. Right uh, after you. And you just undermined all your credit. Anything you said positively about me uh, has now just been undermined because you just referenced Jay Mariotti as a writing influence. Greg, I'm going to let you go. Uh, and let you hop on the phone with Jay Mariotti and talk about this, because clearly you and I have nothing in common uh, other than Mike Royko. <laughs> He's the best. Thank and you. you. Know what? Have a great weekend. Cut Greg off. He may say some more about Jay Mariotti and completely undermine anything positive he said about me. Uh, my God. No wonder Greg's such a mixed nut. How are you going to get Whitlock and Mariotti in the same group. All Mariotti does is write about himself and write about how great the ratings were on Around the Horn when he was on the show. Every damn column references, when I was on Around the Horn, my God, everybody watched our show. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> I, hope Greg, I hope Greg doesn't add, start adding that to his writing. Anyway. I'm gonna eat this built bar and get my weekend started and go visit some family and hang out with my sister for her birthday. She's throwing a big party at her house. Just her love to throw big parties. Uh, and I'm gonna go kick it with the Ball State football team. That's gonna be awesome. All right, we'll see you next week. Regrets and our decisions, we don't want to go to heaven.